Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion, culture, and politics. In this episode, Emily Judd interviews presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church, the Most Reverend Michael Curry, an alum of Yale Divinity School. Bishop Curry discusses his rousing sermon on love that he delivered at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. If human beings ever they rediscover love, it will be the second time in history that humanity has discovered fire. He reflects on the gradual bridging of the racial divide in Christian congregations in America. Real change, real social change, real institutional change, real cultural change, whatever it is, it doesn't happen exponentially. It happens incrementally, and then there is a tipping point, and it explodes. And Bishop Curry explains why he believes the world needs what he calls crazy Christians. We need some people who are willing to be different, different by love, different by compassion. Your sermon on the power of love at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle inspired the world. You said, quote, if humanity ever captures the energy of love, it would be the second time in history that we have discovered fire. Most sermons that we see that are centered on fire are in the fire and brimstone genre and are meant to remind Christians of God's wrath or you know, the threat of hell, but instead used fire as an analogy for God's love. How did you come up with that thinking? What was the inspiration behind that? It, that, that portion was actually a quote from the writings of Teilhard de Chardin, who was, was actually, um, who was both a priest and a scientist. Um, um, he was actually a paleontologist. What he was really getting at was that if you look at the discovery of fire, um, I remember seeing a movie called Quest for Fire years ago, back in the 70s. Um, uh, uh, literally, all, the whole thing was about human beings discovering fire, which really meant learning how to harness the power of fire. That that human civilization really does depend um, on on fire, that, that you don't get human the advances in human civilization and technology and scientific advances without controlled fire. I mean, the reality is uh, every time you get in a car, there's a controlled burn that's really controlling, making that car move forward. But what Deschardins was saying is that human life and civilization and scientific progress for the good, I'm not talking about for the bad, for the good, um, really is dependent on fire. And the discovery of fire um, was probably one of the greatest discoveries in human history. And he was basically saying, if human beings ever, they rediscover Love, it will be the second time in history that humanity has discovered fire. In 2015, you became the first person of color to lead the Episcopal Church. Eight years later, how do you remember that historic moment? Well, well, I remember it with some surprise, but to be honest, I always had this, this sort of a psychological protective mechanism of preparing internally for not being selected. <laughs> so, so, so I was sort of in that in-between state, but actually mentally kind of preparing myself not to be selected and to say, that's going to be all right. Um, your job is to do what the Lord wants you to do whatever that happens to be. And so I literally, this actually is true, I was sitting between Bishop uh, Carol Gallagher and Bishop uh, Gail Harris, um, and I was sitting between them, and I had just kind of put my head down. I think for one moment, there was kind of a self-emptying going on, 
where I don't know what I, I wasn't thinking about anything. <laughs> I, I just had put my head down, closed my eyes, and was just there. And I didn't hear what the presiding bishop said. You didn't hear that you were now going no, to lead the church? <laughs> I did not hear it. I literally had put my head, you know, like I said, I, I don't know. I wish I could say I was deep in prayer. I don't know what I was in. I was with the, with the old spiritual, he said, way down yonder by myself where I couldn't hear nobody pray. I was way down. And I remember uh, Gail Bishop Harris, who's the retired Bishop Suffolk from Massachusetts, said, Michael, you've been elected. That's when I heard it. It was her saying that. I didn't hear it when the presiding bishop announced and, and read the votes, because I think she you know, she would read the votes and that thing. So it was like, it was, a, in that sense, it was a surprise. You, know. you told the New York Times in 2016, uh, quote, when I was in seminary, the expectation at the time was that if you're going to be a black priest or seminarian, you were going to be serving in black churches. There was a black church world and there was a white church world. When did you start to see a change in the racial divide in congregations? Well, I mean, th- some things had cha- began to change over time. You know, real change, real social change, real institutional change, real cultural change, whatever it is, it doesn't happen exponentially. It happens incrementally, and then there is a tipping point, and it explodes. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what happens to a dream-deferred uh, Langston Hughes? Um, it, 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 does it drive like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a soy and then run? Does it uh, crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet or um, uh, sag like a heavy load? Maybe it just explodes, he says, at the very end of the play. I think that explosion is the result of a long incremental process. Um, 1963 was the march on Washington. That was a kind of... That was a, an explosion in a justice movement that had been gathering speed. Um, but my granddaddy was a Pullman porter, and and the Brotherhood of Pullman Porters um, had been marching on Washington for years. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, who was there in 1963, had been marching on Washington since the 1940s. You see what I'm saying? There's an incremental process that it lead that eventually leads to an explosion when when something takes on a new life. So, so I, that happens in every respect. I mean, that's the way social change happens. And so you keep knocking at the door. You keep sitting down on the bus. You keep doing. You see what I'm saying? You keep doing it until something happens, and the and the Kairos moment happens, um, and it explodes and moves forward in, in a new way. And so that's been true. I think in the Episcopal Church, we're not there yet, but but it is. There is no question in my mind that. Um, Michael Curry could not have been elected prior to um, uh, well, about the time that it happened. Huh? 2015? 2015, yeah. Um, um, uh, bishop John Walker, who was the Bishop of Washington, um, had sought the, this office in the, in the late 1980s, um, and, and it didn't happen. Um, and, and part of the reason that it didn't happen um, to be very honest, part of the reason was that the church was not ready for it, um, and 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 the House of Bishops um, uh, were not going to let it happen. Um, and and um, and anyway, that that was the reality in the late nineteen eighties. Um, and we're not going to let it happen because he was a black man. <laughs> mm. Let me just be real clear. I mean, now, I'm not talking about everybody who was in the House of Bishops. I don't mean that. Uh, but there were forces within that house 
um, that worked to prevent it. That's that's part of the history, and everybody knows it. It's it's kind of one of the things. Well, you know, okay, so things have to evolve. Things have to, you know, grow. We have to grow, and we all have the capacity to grow. Um, and I, by the time I was elected, um, there had been enough shifts, um, both in the culture and in the church, that it became a possibility. Um, I had been in the House of Bishops for um, since 2000, and 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 so I'd been in there for 15 years. Um, I was a known quantity; uh, people knew what I was about. Um, and 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 so the bishops knew me, and I don't think they elected me because I was black. Uh, they certainly didn't elect me because I was cute. You know, it it was kind of it was just kind of it felt like the right the right person for the right moment. Um, and, and I mean, I think that's true of all of us. I mean, maybe it's cause I'm almost 70 years old and, and, and getting older now, but the book of Ecclesiastes is beginning to make more sense to me. There's a time for every, every matter under heaven. Um, and, and there's a time when a person happens to be there present in a moment. Um, and that's true of our ministries. That that our we are not people for all seasons. I love that movie, A Man for All Seasons. But the truth is, none of us are people for all seasons. Uh, we are meant for a particular season, for a particular divine purpose and time. And um, mine happened to be in this particular ministry um, for for a particular time. Um, you know, my term will end and it will be time for another, um, a time for a different capacity and gifts and graces to be used for God's work of love and justice and compassion in this world. You wrote a book called Crazy Christians, A Call to Follow Jesus, which is based on a homily of yours that went viral in 2012. And you've said that Christians are called to craziness. What does a crazy Christian look like? A crazy Christian looks like um, a Harriet Tubman. A crazy Christian looks like a Harriet Beecher Stowe. A, a crazy Christian looks like someone who who marches, uh, as Henry David Thoreau um, said, marches to the beat of a different drummer. The day it was part of a at a at a general convention of the Episcopal Church, and um, the the particular uh, day was a day set aside for um, a Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, and, and so I was looking at her and, and, and looking at the text in Mark's gospel, um, where early in Jesus's ministry, um, his own family <laughs> comes up to him. And one of the versions of the text, uh, are people saying he's lost his mind. Um, he's out of his mind. And one of the contemporary versions just said, he's crazy. <laughs> Um, and his family, I mean, his mother and brothers and everybody's trying to like get him, like, will you cool this stuff down a little trying bit? Trying to rein him and, in, yeah. Trying to rein him in, yeah. And and so I wasn't using, I was ri- sort of riffing off of crazy in the co- kind of cultural um, sense of the word um, as a way of identifying someone who does seem to march to the beat of a different drummer, um, someone who does seem to be counter to countercultural, counterintuitive, that this following of Jesus tends to be a different way, um, a different way. I mean, I, I'm always struck, I'm struck by the fact that on Palm Sunday, what we, what we call Palm Sunday, that that the evidence would seem to suggest that um, that it was certainly in the Passover, in the if if not literally during Passover at on the, on the uh, uh, early as Passover was coming, um, that that the governor of Rome traditionally would process into the city 
um, you know, with with uh, all of the military standards of the empire, um, as a way of of knowing full well that the Passover festival was a freedom festival, and basically it would be a military military display of power and might of the empire, which was a way of saying, "Don't you even think about your freedom." Don't you even think about it. And so Pontius Pilate was entering the city that Sunday. Jesus enters the city the same day, probably roughly about the same time. Pilate's on a war horse. Jesus is on a donkey. That was a message. There is another way. Hosanna to the son of David. There is another way. That prophecy in Zechariah that is applied to, to Jesus um, in, lo, your king comes to you riding humble on a donkey as he. If you read the whole prophecy, it talks about he comes for a reign of peace, a reign of justice, contrary to what Pontius Pilate and the empire represented. You see what I mean? There's another way. Well, that's crazy. That's certainly crazy if you're dealing with the empire of Rome, because they can snuff you out. <laughs> they... Uh, crucifixion was a way of snuffing you out. I mean, that's what's going on there. So you see, it's counter the cultural. It's almost counterintuitive. Um, It's it's not the way, it's not as, it is not the way of any status quo. It is another way. And that's what was going on in that crazy Christians. We need some crazy Christians. This cultural sanity is killing us. Uh, We need some people who are willing to be different, different by different by love, different by compassion, different by kindness, different by justice, different by goodness. We need some crazy Christians. And while we're at it, let's get some crazy uh, uh, Jews and crazy Muslim and crazy Buddhists and crazy atheists. And we need some crazy folk to help this world find what real sanity is what real humanity looks like. That's what the whole sermon, I haven't looked at that sermon for a number of years, to be honest, but that's what the sermon was getting at. Recently, the Church of England has been in the news for its consideration to refer to God without assigning a gender. What are your thoughts about that? The truth is, um, our language is limited. I mean, it's, it's limited speech. I mean, it is. And and yeah. um, the limitations of our language um, uh, means that anything we use, I mean, I actually learned this at, at Yale Divinity School, anything that we use to speak of God is at best symbolic or, or analogical, um, you know, or because we can't, I mean, God is God. We're not talking about Michael Curry. We're talking about God. Um, I started to say How God for Christ's sake. God? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so anything, so any language that we use is going to be mm. in some sense symbolic, metaphorical, analogical. I mean, you can go on and on and on. So so given that, we know that our language about God is is imperfect, so we have to do the best we can. I've learned in the last several years to try to think of God in a variety of ways and images, knowing that they're all images, that none of them capture the reality um, of, of, of God. I mean, what does it say in in, in Isaiah? I mean, God is higher um, uh, and greater than our thoughts or imaginings. Um, you know, and that, that that's the truth. God is God is great. Um, we're talking about God, the the source of everything that is, um, and so at best we we find the the best language that we can, 
um, and our pronouns are limiting. God's not male and God's not female. God is God. If I may borrow from, from Rabbi Martin Buber, ultimately, God is the great thou. See, my, my grandma and, 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 and her, her Baptist church in, in Eastern North Carolina understood this. Um, um, she, she hadn't read uh, Tillich, who spoke of God as always the God above God. When you think you've got God, God is always is greater than that God. <laughs> you keep going. God is always the God above your image, your idea of God. But grandma got it this way. She would sing that song, then sings my soul, my savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art the God who just causes awe and wonder. Um, that's God. Um, and so our language is limited. It's okay to pray our Father who art in heaven. and nothing wrong with that. But it's also helpful to remember that Isaiah said, like, like a mother will not forsake her children, so God will not forsake us. So God is, is, is like a father, a good father. God is like a mother, a good mother. God is the great thou, is the, is the great one, is the creator. Um, um, as our indigenous sisters and brothers teach us, God is the great creator. Um, yeah, so, t- so take all the language, the, the best that we can come up with, but let none of it become so limiting. Uh, my final question to you is more of a fun question. Can you share a favorite memory from your time as a student at YDS? <laughs> oh gosh, a favorite memory. What I remember was when Lent came, I was serving at, at St. Luke's Church, New Haven. I was a, a, a seminarian there. Um, um, those of us who were on the team there, um, uh, there were some grad students who were there. And that we would all, in the spirit of Lent and giving up meat on Friday, you know, there was a, there was a service on Friday. We would we would go and actually it was a benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it was that kind of high church stuff. And so we would go for for, for the service of benediction, Blessed Sacrament at St. Luke's. And then we would go over to Little Italy. And I can't remember the name of the place, but it was a, a pizza place with a brick oven. And we would get a pizza. But because it was Friday in Lent, we didn't have pepperoni. We sacrificed yeah. the. Oh, I'm I'm sure Jesus was was really proud of us. We sacrificed <laughs> the pepperoni. That's hard. Yeah, it, it actually is kind of a sacrifice because there's no <laughs> grease on it. But <laughs> oh my gosh, just eating plain pizza during plain Lent. Plain pizza. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Honestly, New Haven, the food is. A good memory that I have as well. <laughs> oh gosh, yes. <laughs> good theology and good food. And this good for you, got uh, it. The experience of Yale Divinity School, yeah. <laughs> well, thank oh. you so much for joining us for this conversation, Emily. It's been a delight, and God bless you. And you keep up this good work. Thank you for it. <laughs>